From the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, starting with verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Epa. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But to you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The gospel of the Lord. Y'all may be seated. It's so great to be with you guys today. Be with you all. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. Um, I hope that your new year is off to a good start. I, I grew up in a church where um, my pastor always had a cool new catchphrase for every year. Um, so it was something like something new in 82 or, you know, something like that. And, uh, and so um, I have a few friends that grew up in the same tradition that I text with back and forth. I think we came up with like, there will be plenty in 2020 or something like that. But um, no, that's, not, that's fine. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas season and a wonderful new year. Um, I know that a lot of this time, like, and I've heard several people say this, but this time of year, a lot of us don't always really know what to do with ourselves, <laughs> kind of sitting around going, all right, we've had all this, like, some of us have had break from work, some of us haven't, I know, but, but it, everything's just kind of different in this time, and everything's starting new, and we're getting back in the grind. Those that have uh, kids in school, getting ready to get our kids back into school, and everything's kind of just odd in this season. Um, so I want to give us a little reorientation of where we're at with the church calendar right now and uh, how we're in the midst of everything. We've, we've just celebrated and are technically still celebrating the season of Christmas. We're in the tail end of it today. Like I said earlier, it's the 12th day of Christmas. And tomorrow, January 6th, is the day... Well, let me back up for a minute. So for those of you that haven't been around the past few weeks, we had the season of Advent, the season of anticipation and longing for Christ's coming. And it's a season of reflection, of recognizing those places in our lives that need the presence of God to move and to work in us. So we observe the Advent wreath, which kind of light begins to grow as we light one candle after the other, right? Um, and then last week, I was not with you, but it was, the, it was a Sunday in the middle of the Christmas season. And I just want to say thank you and just what a great job um, Sarah and Jessica did leading things on that week. It was just awesome. Um, I say it was awesome. I hear some of it secondhand, and then I got to listen to their sermon online, and it really was wonderful. It was just amazing. And the Knoxes as well, I want to say thanks, because they stepped up in a really big way, and they always do. Um, and, and I just thought it was really cool for our church. We've had two weeks in a row where with so many people scattered, I led music two weeks ago, which was a very odd thing for all of us, but, but it was fine. And then, um, and then last week we had so many other people step up when I was gone and others were gone. And it's just a real strength of our community that in the midst of everything that we have people who always rise to the surface. So it's just a really strong thing. Um, so, uh, so that happened. And then tomorrow is the day that the church traditionally celebrates the Feast of Epiphany. And what is Epiphany? Well, it's like I said earlier, it is the day that we recognize that the call of God goes out to all people. This story of Jesus, which is rooted in the Old Testament and the people of Israel, is not only for Israel, and it's not only for any particular group in the world. It's for everybody. It is light to the whole world. The light that shines in the darkness is always moving out. Think about it. That's the nature of light, right? That if I don't know much about physics and all that kind of stuff, but, but light, I guess, moves. It just moves really fast. <laughs> it continues to go out and go out and go out, right? This is the nature of light. And traditionally on this day, tomorrow particularly, we won't have a service tomorrow, so we're celebrating it today, but traditionally we tell the story of the Magi who visited the baby Jesus, 
The Magi were the first Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to enter the story after Jesus' birth. This is significant. And they entered the story in a roundabout way, this odd way through a star and really far away. And I think it's a reminder to us that God will always reach out to people to get their attention no matter who they are, that God is always calling. There's nobody too far away or too culturally different for God to call them with his light. And from the very beginning of the story of Jesus, we are told that the good news is not just for people like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds nearby, but for those far away, those from foreign cultures, those who seek after God. So what's going on in this story? Well, the story we just read, Jesus was born in Judea, which is an area that's ruled by a guy named Herod the Great. Not a great guy, Herod the Great. Don't let it be misleading. He's not great. Herod was the equivalent of a governor at this time. And he was the sole ruler of Judea, but he had to pay tribute and ultimately to submit to Caesar, who was the big emperor over the entire Roman world. So you've got Caesar, who's the big emperor of this whole Roman world, this giant civilization. And then you've got within that a governor of Judea, the people, the Jewish people, Herod is their ruler who submits to Caesar. Herod was interesting character. He was half Jewish and half Edomite. And in a sense, he was a Jewish king. So he claimed himself to be the king of the Jews. That was a title he claimed for himself. But there was a belief by the Jewish people that he had betrayed them because of his loyalty to Caesar. So he was seen as this like fake king, this king who wasn't really our king. He was Rome's king. Herod was an old man, and so he probably assumed that if a new king was to be born and there was a prophecy fulfilled, it, of course, would be one of his kids, right? Or somebody in his line who would take over for him. So when Jesus is born and he hears this news of these magi who are coming to worship, he's disturbed because there's a threat to his power. There's a king who's been born, and that messes with him. That messes with his authority. It's threatening to him. This is a reminder that the story of Christmas will always be met with opposition by the powers of this world. That the incarnation of Jesus is a threat to those in power. That's a strong statement, but why do I say that? Well, it wasn't, it's not a threat because emperors would be afraid that all of a sudden people would start claiming that Jesus was their personal Lord and Savior. That wouldn't be that threatening. There were a lot of gods in the ancient world and you could worship them privately. You could say they were your personal Lord and Savior. You and your family could consider them to be your God. That kind of thing is not really that threatening. As long as it's personal and private, the emperors are fine with that. But when your faith actually starts changing things, when it starts changing real physical realities and structures, and when you start claiming that there's a new thing that's stronger than the old thing, you start to have a problem with empires. They start feeling like they're getting disturbed. So to claim something like, unto you is born this day a savior who is Christ the Lord, is to say that the things and the people who tell us in this world that they are the saviors and they are the Lords are frauds and phonies. So these magi, they come from the East and we don't know hardly anything about them. So don't believe, I've studied this a lot. Like if you read something and it says, we know exactly who the magi are, don't believe it, right? It's, there's a lot of speculation about who these guys were. Um, 
they could have been priests from Persia. That may fit. That was kind of the traditional understanding of it. There's a, a theory that they came from Nabataea, which was kind of a closer region. Um, over time, the church tradition started to develop some legends around this. So there, we don't know that there were actually even three of them. So the old song, We Three Kings, like we don't know that there were three. They probably weren't kings either. Um, so weren't necessarily three. There weren't necessarily kings. And we don't know their names. So if you ever heard the tradition that their names are Balthazar and Melchior and all these kind of things, like um, that's just tradition, which is fine. It's a fine story and a parable to tell with it. And there's reasons for it, but we don't necessarily think that that was the case. What do we know about them? Well, the first thing we know is that they followed a star. So they were the kind of people who looked to the stars for guidance. This was a world where astrology was considered a fine art. So each planet had a corresponding meaning. When you looked in the sky and certain planets seemed to align with each other or align with different stars, they had a certain meaning for astrologers. Okay, that's what they looked at. Everything was seen as in interconnected. Some scholars speculate that if they came from Arabia or Nabataea, they could have had access to the book of Isaiah, the messianic prophecies about Jesus. They may have also had access to Zoroastrian prophecies that a Messiah would come. So they're kind of piecing all this stuff together. They're going, here's what's happening in the sky. There's some prophecies we're reading from all these different traditions. And we think that that means that there is a king who's going to be born to the Jewish people. So there's a lot of like <laughs> math going on here, right? A lot of piecing stuff together that's happening, which is so interesting. So there may have been a scenario where the Magi, they have Isaiah, they have the Zoroastrian prophecies, they have a signal in the sky to show them a king is to be born to the Jewish people. And I think this is so incredible because what it shows us from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel is that God is the God who draws outsiders, it draws people from far away. So it's not just good news for the Jewish people. It was good news for them first, but this is good news for everybody, for those who are far away. This is good news for the world. And I don't know about you, but over the years, this has created a little challenge for me because like we think about people who study astrology and we go, well, that's not the path to God. Like what's going on here? Um, Fleming Rutledge tells the story of how she was walking around in the small New England village where she lived, and she saw a stunning white congregational church. It was just beautiful. It was kind of a sign of consistent, faithful believers for generations and generations. And then just opposite of that, she saw all these signs advertising horoscopes, crystals, tarot cards, and all kinds of occult paraphernalia. She talked about this contrast that was just kind of jarring and kind of interesting. And she asked herself, like, all right, what is all this stuff? Is it harmless fantasy? Is it just commercial opportunity? Is it just whatever works for you? And I think we have to, as Christians, we have to constantly ask the question, does this thing, whatever it is, does it point to Jesus? Does it point to Christ? That has to be kind of our ultimate goal and our ultimate destination. As Jessica said so eloquently last week, that Jesus is the word of God. He is the final word. There is nothing else that is the final word other than Jesus. So everything that we pursue in this life must find its place in the light of Christ. The Magi saw this thing that they were chasing, this birth, as something. Something was drawing them not just as like an add-on to their life, 
or a way towards success or a way towards fame, but there was something they felt like they actually needed to worship. That idea of worship is key. Give allegiance to. They certainly couldn't describe what that thing was. Rutledge says, the thing about the Magi is that they recognized Jesus Christ as the one to whom they owed their ultimate allegiance. Their astrology led them not to messages about romance and good fortune, but to the Messiah of Israel. Matthew is telling us that the homage paid to the Christ child by the Magi prefigures the time when the whole world will recognize and bow before Jesus Christ. We live in a world today of religious smorgasbord, (laughs) that whatever we can do in our lives, we believe to help us achieve ecstasy, enlightenment, success, or fame, or money, we go after that. And so we meet so many people in our world that kind of piecemeal together their religion, that if I pull a little bit from this and I pull a little bit from that, and often this gives us the illusion that we can just create something out of all these things. We just piece something together, that religion can just be that. It's a self-help formula, whatever works for me, and I can make it out of that. Ultimately, though, the challenge is that every person in this life will pay allegiance to something at the end of the day. Everybody will choose something to give their life to. Even if you meet somebody that goes, yeah, I'm completely free. I don't give my allegiance to anything. There is something that drives them. There's something that has the final word in their life. And so the ultimate question is always, what is that thing? What is it that we're chasing? So I've learned over the years not to freak out when um, someone I know starts to dabble in other religions and superstition, or even when they have what I call the atheist flu, <laughs> that they kind of think they're an atheist for a while. <laughs> um, uh, let, me, let me be clear. Like, I don't think any of those things are the dream, right? I don't think any of those are better paths, but, but often it's part of genuine seeking that people begin to see what else is out there. And I think that when Christians freak out over that, like I've known especially a lot of parents, we've had a lot of young people in our churches over the years, and there's a lot of parents that just freak out when their kids start kind of challenging their faith or exploring something else. When we freak out about that, we often drive people further away, is what we do. Like the Magi, our genuine seeking in this life may point us to a star. We have a longing, something in our heart or in creation leads us to seeking, but this seeking, and this is important, is incomplete in and of itself. Seeking is not the goal, okay? It requires God's revelation. Notice the Magi didn't need the, um, or did need the scribe's interpretation of the scriptures. They needed to get there and then understand the Jewish tradition a little bit better. But when someone seeks, we don't need to freak out. We can have confidence in our story and ultimately in God because he is the one who sends the star. He is the one that draws people to himself. It is always a story of love and that kind of story will always draw us when it is expressed in love. Have you noticed that Matthew doesn't spend a whole lot of time telling us about the star? Uh, There's movies that have been produced about what kind of star it is and all these things. Matthew didn't really tell us. He also doesn't tell us a lot about the Magi either. Matthew's aims are primarily political. What do I mean by that? 
Matthew is interested in saying that Jesus is the true king of the Jews and the king of the world, which means Herod is the false king of the Jews and Caesar is the false king of the world. So he has a political aim here. Herod is an imposter. Herod died soon after Jesus's birth, but his sons ruled on and one of them, Herod Antipas, played a significant role in the developing story of Jesus's life. The Herods, each of the sons, were also referred to as the king of the Jews, and they would see any other king as a threat to their power. But Matthew wants us to see something really clearly. If Jesus is in some sense the king of the Jews, that doesn't mean that his rule is limited to the Jewish people. At the heart of many of the prophecies about the coming king, the Messiah, there were predictions that his rule would bring God's justice and God's peace to the whole world, not just to Israel. By his response, we can see that Herod is a really fragile guy. So the story says that all of Jerusalem with him is terrified. So it's not just that Herod is afraid. The threat, this is a threat to the whole system. If there's a new king, everybody around Herod, everybody who's in power, everybody who's benefited from his administration and his kingdom is shaking in their boots because there's a revolution that's happening. What's happening when a new king is born is a complete revolution because Jesus is not like all the other kingdoms because Jesus's kingdom and the primary kind of um, identifying marker of Jesus's kingdom being different is it doesn't come about by force. It comes about by self-giving love. Every other kingdom throughout history, every other kingdom in the ancient world and in the modern world comes about in some way by force or by manipulation in some way. But the kingdom of God is about self-giving love. It's the mustard seed. It's small. It's the lost coin that is searched for. It's the lost sheep that's far away. It's the father who welcomes his son. It's turning the other cheek. And the powers that be don't know what to do with that because other, every other kingdom is violent. Come to our path or else. The way of Jesus is different. So when Herod is freaking out, he consults with the religious leaders. He calls together the Jewish leaders. And in this, Matthew is, is challenging not just the political structures, but he's also saying the religious structures are corrupt too. So if Jesus is born, it means a threat not only to politics, but also to the systems of religion too. Everything is turned on its head. Notice that Herod seems to have his scribes. He has his leaders who are close to him and they're his Jewish scribes who really have um, Herod's best interest in mind, right? Craig Keener says that this story is a lot like the chorus in a Greek drama. And in a Greek drama, there would be two sides that would play off one another. There are two kind of opposite ends that would go back and forth. So in this story, we have two kinds of wise men. We have the Magi, pagan astrologers who worship Jesus. And we have the Jewish religious leaders who take Jesus for granted. We have these two opposites back and forth. And they continue to do this throughout Matthew's gospel. The ones who should be the most open to Jesus, the religious leaders, the ones who should be the most open and the most receptive, who know the scriptures and should be able to understand him, those are the ones who resist him. Keener says Matthew is emphatic that the sin of taking Jesus for granted, like the sin of wishing him dead, 
is a sin that can especially characterize those who claim to be God's servants. God is forever messing with our categories. Those who have it all figured out are the ones who are in the wrong, often in the Gospels. Those who are humbly seeking are the ones who are in the right. The early church would have heard this story and would have identified with one of the two groups. So imagine for a second that you're part of one of the early church and you're reading, you get this story of the Magi and maybe you've heard it in an oral tradition before or maybe you're hearing it for the very first time and you hear this story and if you're a Gentile, you're going, we were brought into the story by a star. Wow, God's grace reaches out to us even when we were pagans and far away and didn't know anything about this. If you're a Jewish Christian, you're hearing this story and you're going, God, may we never take your revelation for granted like the scribes did. Lord, may we never take your revelation for granted. And I think both of those messages are for us today. That for those of us who feel shameful and far away and distant, those in our world who feel like maybe they're the farthest away from God that they could possibly be, the star continues to shine. The light continues to go out. And then for those of us who have been part of the story, who have been close to it for a long time, who are part of the faith, there is also this challenge for us at the very same time to go, Lord, may we never take that for granted. May we always know when you're active and working in the world and trust you above all else. For the early church and for every church, this story is a reminder that there are those who are seeking. There are those who are outsiders to the story who are drawn to who Jesus is. And Matthew has this in mind. Matthew's gospel ends. So Matthew's gospel begins with this, the birth of Jesus and the Magi. And Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus commissioning his disciples with what we call the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. Um, this, is a, this story of the Magi is a foreshadowing of that story. The gifts of the Magi, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were things pagans would give to kings or to gods. Even at this early stage, Gentiles recognize that Jesus is king. There's a big church word that we should probably use here at this moment, okay? Prepare you, warning, big church word ahead. And that word is evangelism. <laughs> um, for those of us that were maybe raised in church, this may carry a lot of baggage for us. I flash back to chick tracks. Anybody remember what those are, right? Um, diagrams on napkins that we were taught to do really quickly, right? Um, or easy formulas like the Romans road. Uh, but often evangelism is simply sharing our story and the gentle encouragement of others to keep seeking and doing all of that in love. That's often what evangelism is. It's saying, this is what has happened in my life. This is the way that God has worked in my life. And then going, just encouraging people seeking and making sure that we're always responding in love. That's it. In the South, we're in an interesting situation where uh, most people you meet know something about Christianity. There are parts of our world and even parts of America today where people don't really get that. I mean, there's not even that first basic level. Um, Flannery O'Connor once, once wrote about why Southern authors, <laughs> even those who aren't Christian, 
tend to be really theological with their literature. And so she said um, this, but approaching the subject from the standpoint of a writer, I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. The Southerner who isn't convinced of it is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. They cast strange shadows, particularly in our literature. What does she mean by that? Well, the South is not Christ-centered. I think those of us that live in the South for any period of time, we know that we're centered on a lot of other things, right? But we are Christ-haunted. There is some sense in most people you talk to that there is a sense of, I might be made in the image of God. (laughs) And this Jesus story might be real. And there's something in it that's a little different. There's something deep in our bones. And with that, with that deep sense in our bones also comes a lot of deep pain that people have experienced at the hand of the church. So, so many people that you meet have been hurt by church, have had horrible situations in church, and they carry that pain. And most Southerners have seen a vision of Christianity which maybe doesn't welcome the marginalized. Maybe it became a club that was separate from everybody else. Many Southerners have seen a version of Christianity which cozies up to the status quo. It just becomes like a cultural Christianity, right? But we're called as the church to live that true story that's different, that outsider-welcoming, revolutionary kind of story. The only way for them to see the Christ story afresh is through love and through loving invitation. That's it. So I wanna just talk for the next couple minutes about um, where we're at as a church. Some, some dreams that have come out of this story for me. Um, some things that I always, whenever I get to epiphany, I start, I start kind of dreaming in this way and I start thinking about what the, how the church, what the church is supposed to be, why we exist, what our mission is. Um, and I've done a lot of reflecting where we are today as a church. It's, it tends to happen whenever I let myself kind of relax and rest a little bit. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I get excited about all these things. Um, another word for the local church is a parish. I want to kind of introduce that word to you guys today. The, you may hear me use that more often when I talk about our church. I may talk about it as a parish. And really, it's just a way of indicating that we are not the church, just us, Right? that we are an expression, a local expression of the church worldwide, okay? Um, And I think about this parish, first of all, with gratefulness. I am so grateful for the community that God has blessed us with. Um, When I think about particularly some of the things, we are a kind community, which I I know sounds like what should be all Christians should be that way, (laughs) but you'd be surprised. Um, uh, Our community is kind and also faithful, I reflect back again just on how even as so many people when when we travel and different people are out and different leaders are out, just the way that our faithfulness kind of allows different leaders to rise to the surface. It's just profound and amazing thing. We are a kind and faithful church. And we are a kind, I don't think I'm saying anything you don't know here. We are a kind, faithful, small church. And that's wonderful. There's so much that's good about that. We are close to one another. We are like really in each other's lives. Like, I don't think it's gotten to the point where it's too much, <laughs> but, but when somebody's going through something, we tend to know about it, right? We, we tend to experience it, and it's beautiful, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. 
And you may have noticed, especially the past few months, that we've had about the same consistent group of people together for an extended period of time. Um, I, I thought about last year when I kind of, I had some dreams coming out of this story. <laughs> and I shared with you a little bit about our, our goals for the new year and talked about wanting to develop a leadership structure. And we have established a uh, vestry board. So we've come through the goal of last year. We have a new vestry board and that's been absolutely amazing. I thought about, I kind of challenged you to be more consistent with attendance and with giving last year. And you all have stepped up in a big way. Like, um, many of you I know have made a concerted effort to be here more regularly. Part of that is just your own formation, but part of that is also in believing in the mission of the church. Um, financially, we have, we have a small church, but we have a faithful, generous church. And that's beautiful. It's amazing. So we've seen that faithfulness uh, come out. We have had um, fewer people on the margins of our church and more people become part of the core. So we have a pretty consistent core group of people. Um, we've grown by a few this past year, and we've also grown organically with new babies born, a <laughs> new baby uh, boom that's happened. Um, and there have been some times, this is just me being honest with you, over the past seven years where the smallness of our church has made me antsy, um, made me uncomfortable. There have been times where I felt like we have to grow in order to be relevant, to be legitimate, or something like that. And by the grace of God, I no longer feel that way. Um, in this season, I have been blessed to know that if God calls me to pastor the same group of people for decades and decades, that is a faithful and beautiful calling. And I celebrate that. I don't think I could talk to you about the challenges I'm gonna talk to you about here, um, the things I'm gonna challenge you in in the next few minutes, if I wasn't in that kind of space today. If I was still feeling that antsiness, I don't think I'd be able to do this in a healthy way, but I've come to this place by God's grace. So I wanna to talk to you about growing the church today. I wanna to talk to you about that. And I don't do that out of any existential dread. I love our church and I love where we are. And there's a holy contentment in my heart about our church. And yet, when Ashley and Lucy and I moved here almost seven years ago, we had in our heart the dream for those without a home church, for those seeking and those looking to be rooted in something deeper than themselves. And today, it's my love for this church that leads me to not be able to shake the fact that I want more people to be part of this church. <laughs> it's it's because I love what God is doing here that I want to see the church grow. I want more people to experience this beautiful community. And maybe you've felt the same way, but it messes with me. I go back and forth between we are a small church and that's okay. And I really want more people to find a home in this beautiful place. <laughs> so I go back and forth and I'm learning that those are not mutually exclusive that maybe it's the love of the church as it is that actually makes me want more people to connect with it. Over the past seven years, we've tried a bunch of stuff to get the church to grow. <laughs> we've tried advertising, we've tried big events, and we've not found a magic bullet for church growth for more people to know about it. Um, most of those who have joined us have done so out of some kind of relationship or through finding us online and just visiting. Um, 
We are not a church where tons of people come in and visit and then they go, oh, I'm never coming back and they leave. Most people who come to our church tend to like it. <laughs> we just don't have a lot of people who try it, right? So, so that's kind of the, the thing that we've wrestled with. So in my search for this mythical magic bullet over the years, I have discovered two things, three things. <laughs> First of all, um, we are responsible for faithfulness. God is responsible for growth. We are responsible for faithfulness. God is responsible for growth. So if we are faithful, and in five years from now, we have the same number of people as we do today, I'm at peace with that. Because I don't make things grow. That is God's job, okay? Number two, faithfulness is a group thing, all right? It's clear that my personality and gifts are not gonna make this church grow radically, okay? I'm just gonna say that. Um, nor do I want them to, okay? Um, this is not how healthy churches grow. We don't grow because one person, um, some churches do, but not healthy churches, <laughs> where one person just by their gifts and personality is able to just get a lot of people there. We have to link arms and do this together if this is something we wanna do and are committed to doing together. So part of what I'm asking you to do for the next few months is something I'm excited about, and I hope you will be too. <laughs> I'm inviting you to join me in something. And I'm wondering if we try this the next few months, if we go all in to see our community grow, if we might be surprised at what might happen. The third thing, so, so number one was we're responsible for faithfulness, God's responsible for growth. Secondly, faithfulness is a group thing. And then third, we've found that personal invitation supported by a strong online presence seems to be our best way to see growth. From all that we know, which there may be a lot we don't know at this point, I'm sure there is, but from what we know based on the fact that most people who have come to our church who are here are coming because of personal invitation, and also a good online presence, that that may be our best path. So we're working on our online presence. We've been doing a lot. Wes and I, uh, Wes is working on it. I'm, I, I tell him things look good and don't look good in my opinion. But um, we're working on our online presence, on a new website, new branding. We're trying to make it where um, who we are is more clear and more kind of the type of church that we are and why we exist is strong and clear. We're working on videoing our sermons. That's something I hear from people who don't go to our church all the time. So they're like, I just would love to find a video online that I could kind of experience it in some way. We're working on that. But personal invitation is really the strongest way to see a church grow. It just is what we keep going back to. There are some studies that have shown that a significant number of people who don't currently go to church would go to church if they were just asked by a family or friend, family member or friend. Um, so I think all of us know, I, I'm gonna speak for me, but I think all of us, <laughs> know one person or family in our lives who doesn't currently attend church and might accept the invitation to come to church. I don't think it's a stretch to say that. So here's what I want to challenge you with. For the next three months, I want to challenge you to invite that one person or family to a church service, that one person or family. They may say no. It's risky to invite people to church, all right? I get it. But I think it would be good for us. For this one family, I want to encourage you what we're going to call a strong invitation. 
I don't, that's not like a manipulative twisting your arm invitation. That's like direct and face-to-face is what I mean by that, right? So um, have you ever thought about going to church? I love my church, and it's such a great group of people. If you feel that way, if you don't like your church, don't invite people to church, okay? <laughs> but if you feel that way, it's, it's such a great group of people. Would you want to join us on this particular day? That's a strong invitation, okay? Second, I want to ask you, there's more than just one thing I'm asking you to do. In addition to that, for the next three months, I think we may all know five people or families who we could give soft invitations to church. What do I mean by that? Okay. Facebook invite, message, text message, right? Etc. Kind of like, hey, you guys going to church anywhere? Um, we're having this thing, or you know, I'm going to be at church this Sunday. Would love for you to sit with me. That kind of thing. It's a soft kind of invitation. These may be people who you may have had conversations with people where church has come up in the past, and they said, oh, I might try check that out sometime. Right? This would be somebody to follow up with in that way. And then third, for those of you who use social media, I want to encourage you to use it for this. Um, if this stuff is meaningful to you, again, if it's not meaningful to you, don't use it for social media. But um, if it's meaningful to you, share stuff. Maybe it's a sermon. Maybe it's something that we've posted, an encouragement, to, you know, something like that. Um, and then there's a bunch of ways that are helpful to do that. So sharing Facebook posts, of, uh, of course, and invites. Writing a review on our Facebook page actually kind of is a big deal. And people are checking out church and they go and see that somebody's reviewed that highly. Um, our Apple podcast, if you don't even know that we have that, we have one of those and you could review on there. If we share a video, it would be fun if we all shared it together and didn't just share, just wasn't just our church sharing it, but we all shared it together. Um, and again, I hope none of this ever feels like pushing, ever feels like any attempt at manipulation. I've sat under pastors before that go, everybody pull out your phones right now. We're all going to do this thing. That's not what we're doing. And no one's going to be checking up on you on any of this stuff. <laughs> These are ideas of ways for more people to know about who we are. Um, and I feel like as we talk about this stuff, it's important to have a tangible goal here, all right? Um, it's one thing to say generally we all want to grow. I haven't talked to one person at Sacrament that has said, I really don't want our church to grow. I want it to stay exactly the same way. I think all of us want to grow. But part of that is a tangible goal for this, a common thing to aim for. And I, I went back and forth about this, and I prayed about this a lot, and I don't want to give a number. I don't want to say we're going to grow and be this size at this point because I don't want any of us to ever equate a certain size with a success, right? So, so here's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, I have an audacious goal for you. Some of you, this is going to be, well, that's too much, right? But I think it's reachable and audacious at the same time. Um, many of the church plant trainings that Ashley and I went through early on said that even small churches— should consider on Easter Sunday doing two services just for that day, okay? Um, part of that is because more service time options often open up more people to attend when you have multiple service times. Um, so what if our goal was this, that by Easter, we would be in a place where we could even consider doing two Easter Sunday morning services? 
Now, let me clarify that. I'm not saying we go to two services every week, okay? That would be a bit much. Ashley thought I was saying that at first, and she said, no, like immediately. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for Easter Sunday, because right now, if we were to say we're going to do two services on Easter Sunday, we'd feel like we're splitting our family in half, and that wouldn't really be fun, right? But if we were to the point where we were inviting people, and then also Easter Sunday, we were planning to invite people, where actually we might have pretty full this group twice, I think that's reachable. I think it's audacious, but I think it's reachable. Now, I haven't talked to our, talked to our leadership team about this. We're going to have to do some practical things <laughs> as far as band, and we might have to ask you to do some things like serve in one service and attend another service or something like that. But um, this is kind of a goal that um, we're feeling at this point. Now, if we get there and it doesn't feel right, and we go, yeah, we, shouldn't, we really shouldn't do that, that's okay. We've not failed. We've been faithful. Because we're not responsible for growth. God is responsible for growth, right? I have a, yeah. So, um, so that's, what, that's what I'm thinking. And the reason for this, I hope you guys understand that I think big goals are helpful for us. I think it's important for us, if we believe that's a value, I think it's important for us to try it and go for it, okay? So here's um, finally some, if we do this, if you accept this challenge with me, we walk through this together, we have to remember the fundamentals. In basketball, a slam dunk is great, but if you can slam dunk, but you don't know how to throw a bounce pass or shoot a jump shot or get back on defense, a slam dunk is no good, right? The fundamentals are important. So first of all, we have to pray through this. Like, if we really believe it's God who's responsible for growth and not us, then we could spin our wheels like crazy and not actually trust him and listen for his voice, and that wouldn't be helpful at all. We need to pray through this. We need to commit ourselves. Pray for your church. Pray for those in this city who don't have a home church. There is something about expressing our desire to God for the homeless to have a home that I think he uses. Second of all, I wanna encourage you to keep giving. <laughs> um, we've gotta stay faithful in our giving. You know, to, uh, operating a church on a regular basis is, uh, is a difficult thing. It's, there's a lot that goes into it. It's not just even the basics. There's things like this week, I gotta pay an accounting software yearly renewal fee and all these kind of things that just go along with running a church. So as a community, in addition to the invitation, we gotta keep steady in that and then also keep attending. And I wanna say particularly that you all have really stepped up on this. I mean, faithful attendance will be important to set a foundation for growth. Because let's say somebody invites five of their friends one Sunday, and then that happens to be the Sunday that everybody else decided to sleep in, right? Then it's a whole different dynamic that Sunday than it would be otherwise. You agree? Right, okay. So, so all of that is important. Um, again, please, I, I can't guard us enough from legalism on this, and, you know, but I think the challenge is helpful. Um, and if you think I'm being too audacious, that's fine. <laughs> but I don't want it to be said that we didn't try and we didn't go for it, okay? Um, finally, in closing, God uses unlikely things to draw people to himself. You're gonna find in this process, and in seven years of church planning, I've been shocked. The people I thought would be the most likely to accept an invitation to church didn't. And some of the people I thought would be the least likely were those who did accept you may find that the people you thought would be likely to say, yes, I'm all in, say no, but your mailman shows up or your Uber driver or something, right? Like God uses unlikely things. He, you, he speaks to people in unlikely ways, just as unlikely as say a star in the night sky. 
We love people and we want them to know the love of God, which is for them. Um, that's really the prayer and the heart of all of this is that we would know God's love. My, my prayer in this season is that in your life that you would experience God's light, that those places that feel dark, those places that feel unreached and shameful, that you would know that his light goes to you, that you're not disqualified. And then I think we can't help as we experience that in our lives to share that with others. I think that's part of it and it goes together. Let's pray. Loving God, I have shared my heart today. Um, We've been challenged by your scripture. We've been challenged with some tangible goals for these next few months. Lord, I pray that everything in our lives would be rooted in a trust of you, that you are our final allegiance. We don't give allegiance to cultural things or expectations. We don't give allegiance to personalities or to um, other systems that we trust in, Lord, but we lay those things down and we put our trust in you. Lord, I pray for those of us today that have felt disqualified, that have felt shameful and have felt broken. Lord, may we know that your light always goes out to us, that we are included and we are invited. And Lord, may we learn this week, this month, this year, (laughs) this lifetime, to share your light. We trust you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.